Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Joining me today is the head tutor of singing at the Performing Arts Institution, Italia Conti. He is an established singing teacher and educator whose work includes singing voice rehabilitation. He runs his own private practice, working with both aspiring and professional performers, and has collaborated with the Voice Clinic at Lewisham Hospital, where he has volunteered weekly for the last five years. He is one of the nicest people I have ever met, and I'm not just saying that because he happens to be one of my superiors. <laughs> Michael Vickers, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's nice to see you. Auditions for Drama School and other higher education programmes are getting underway here in the UK, ready for September enrolment 2023. So what is your advice to aspiring performers and their singing teachers regarding choosing which institutions to audition for in the first place? Um, I think deciding on where you want to train is, is really personal. Um, I, th I think do your research is, is the main thing I'd suggest to start with is go, well, actually, what, what are my skill sets right now? Where do I want to be in X number of years? I mean, when students apply for drama school, I think that is their world for, for a bit of time. Um, and the, the end result is, you know, hopefully getting a place. However, on the other side of the, the panel, we've got, you know, maybe three or four years with that student where we hope that they will be able to go into the industry in whatever capacity and be, you know, fully, fully set up, geared up for the job. Um, so thinking about, well, what is my dance experience? What is my acting and singing experience? What do I need to develop for the, for the career that I'm hoping to have? And what school would best suit that for me? Some really focus on dance, some focus more on singing and acting, and some, you know, really try to be that balance of the, the triple threat. Mm -hmm. So I think research comes first. And I think for a lot of people that is talking to staff, if you can, going to open days. Is there any capacity for the singing teacher to sit in on a drama school audition? Oh, I, this is actually something I've thought about recently, um, because one of the biggest, the biggest changes to my teaching practice was when I started being on panels and watching, you know, a hundred applicants in a day or however many it might be. And there are things that I suddenly started doing differently in the studio, having seen how things come across in the room. And so I would love all singing teachers to have a chance to sit in on panels the logistics of that, if you're working in private practice, are probably probably limited. Um, but if you work in an institution, uh, speak to whoever is doing the panels and ask. Um, that's something at Conti I'd probably be really keen for people to do, because I do think it makes such a big difference to, to your practice in the room. Mm. What is going to be likely that the performer is going to need to prepare in terms of audition material? So... There's a kind of general, you're going to be asked to, to sing one or two, maybe three songs. Typically, they're going to specify that those are going to be contrasting songs. Some schools for their first round have slightly different requirements. So uh, you might just be asked for one 
anything goes song not not from the show anything goes as in one song that you just really enjoy singing and you think showcases your skills some schools ask for the same requirements for the first and the second round um in terms of the kinds of specificity they ask for some schools ask for something pre-1965 as one of the songs and some schools ask for something post-1965 they then might go into exactly what style of musical theatre from those general, you know, year groupings. So at Conti, we ask for that one of the songs is a lyrical pre-1965 song. Uh, because we do want to hear some of those longer lyrical lines that we associate with legit musical theatre, some schools don't specify that. I think some schools actually at the moment are specifying they even use the word like classical leaning. Mm. The main thing to do is go to the website and constantly check. <laughs> yeah. yeah, We talk about auditions being, you know, art is subjective, right? <laughs> and that is true. Um, you will have some people on the panel that have certain things they look for particularly, mm. but there are things that are objective <laughs> and knowing the right words, knowing the right notes those things are things that if you get right won't get you a place mm. but if you get them wrong might stop you getting a place i would say although there are exceptions to that but know what the criteria is for the drama school you really don't want to be the person that goes there and goes oh whoops i've brought the wrong thing yeah so yeah so it's finding that balance um between you know the subjective part of art and just making sure you've, you've ticked all the boxes mm. So we ask at Conti for a Golden Age lyrical song, um, one of them to be a Golden Age lyrical song, and the other one is a traditional or contemporary musical theatre song that's post-1965. Mm -hmm. If a drama school specifies legit, lyrical, it's a bit more ambiguous, but if it specifically asks for legit, do remember that not all musical theatre songs that are pre-1965 are legit. Yeah, so there's actually, there's a really amazing video that hopefully is still on YouTube. I think it's Matt Edwards that is, what's it? it's adjudicating musical theatre panels for Nats, I think is the video. And that goes into this with, with a lot of detail. But we have musical theatre that comes from, kind of comes from a more classical tradition. So our carousels are, are more classical leaning, uh, vocal production but we also have if you think of like a show like anything goes mm -hmm. lots of that is big belty jazz influenced musical theater and so if you ask for something legit i don't really want to hear a big old belty number from you know the 1930s i do want to be hearing those lyrical lines if you're a soprano mezzo alto if that's accessible for you i do want to hear you moving into the higher register whatever you want to call that um, and if you're a tenor bass or baritone, I do want to hear those more li lyrical sounds at the top rather than big, blasty contemporary, contemporary sounds. What would your advice be to the performer who may not have sung in a way that is more leaning towards classical or may not have belted when choosing their repertoire? Yeah, so if we're talking specifically about drama school auditions, that's a, perhaps a different answer from from teaching at a, at a different level or age group. Realistically, when you go to drama school, those are skills you are going to be asked of. 
what we don't expect is that every singer is going to have explored, uh, uh, you know, are going to be the best lyrical musical theatre singer plus the best belter. Um, what we're really, it really comes down to, I guess, that word of trainability, mm. which is comes up all the time in auditions. And goes, what what do we actually mean by trainability? Well, we want to see that you have the beginnings of something that we think could be developed into a really useful professional skill set. And so what I wouldn't recommend is airing your dirty laundry, <laughs> which is don't come in singing a huge high lyrical song if that isn't your your experience and expertise. Um, pick something that is accessible but still showcases some of those skills. Mm -hmm. So I think of a song like... Um, they say it's wonderful. That's really achievable in terms of range for a kind of singer starting to explore more lyrical music, mm -hmm. but is really not overly challenging. But as a panelist, I'd hear that kind of song and go, great, I'm starting to hear development of those skills, even if we're not quite at, you know, if I loved you from Carousel. Mm -hmm. and, and the same goes for the, the kind of beginner belters. If don't pick something that requires you to sustain those kind of belty qualities so high. Something that is more speech-based, that just requires you to explore that lower part of your voice and just takes that kind of speech quality a little bit higher up. Um, realistically, we see a huge array of repertoire brought into auditions. And we are, you know, we're nice people. <laughs> and we can, we hope we can tell when somebody's well-prepared mm. and when they're well-meaning and when they're showing their best work, we really want people coming in to do their best work. And I think in terms of repertoire selection, we can absolutely find things for our beginner legit singers, our beginner belters. Um, but showcase the things you do that, that you do well. Um, mm -hmm. We really want you to do well. And, you know, Actually, I think that's the, the kind of main takeaway. When yeah. you go into the audition room, we, we're really wishing you on. We want you to be the person we give a place to. Mm. Um, yeah, always bear that in mind. I think singers, singers really want to have a sense of control in an environment where they don't have all that much. Mm. So we can obsess over, am I wearing the white, right shoes? Is this the perfect song? And while, yes, there are shoes, you know, Clown shoes would probably be inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some songs that are probably not not so appropriate given mm -hmm. the brief. But, you know, show us your best work. Um, find something that you sing really well and you enjoy singing and that you think shows the elements we're looking for in the brief. Mm. And if something happens in the moment, for example, forgetting a lyric or just having a bit of a panic, because nerves really do take over us sometimes, is it okay to stop and ask to start again? Yeah, I think it's what I don't want the takeaway for somebody to be is, oh, I don't need to memorize my lyrics because if I forget, I can stop and start again. No, <laughs> but things happen in live performance and there might be a slip up of a word. Try and get back on the horse. But if you need to stop and start again, I mean, that would be, that would probably be, be fine. We can, as I said, I think we can tell when somebody's really keen and has really worked to bring their material to be as, as well prepared as possible. And then if a mistake happens, a mistake happens. And how do you run an audition? Oh, yeah. So 
I mean, purely logistically, there's probably going to be a waiting room, a waiting room nearby and a, a steward, which is often a student or it might be a member of staff, will explain to you how the day is going to run. They will then take you through at your time to, um, to your audition. Uh, at Conti, we run a few different auditions at once. And so some students might be having their dance audition whilst other students are having their singing audition. Uh, for me, they'd already be coming for their singing audition. They'd come to the door and I would say, hi, how are you? Uh, I'd, check, I'd check who you are and I'd say, what have you got to sing for us? They would offer their options. And this is obviously a, a second round that's in person. And I would say, mm, let's hear X, Y, Z. Um, and then you'd just go and speak to the pianist as you'd probably prepared to do so. You'd talk them through the cut. You'd talk them through any to any tempos that you need to explain. You'd come back to the middle of the room and I'd probably say, whenever you're ready. <laughs> and, I, and when I say whenever you're ready or take a second, do take a second. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think for uh, auditionees, a, a millisecond feels like an eternity. Yeah. Um, and if a panelist, you know, gives you gives you a moment, say, you know, take a breath, have a second before your next song, um, really take it. Um, we we want you to take it so you can be at your best. Don't mm -hmm. feel like you need to rush straight in straight into the next thing. Um, mm -hmm. And once you've sung, it depends on the audition. Um, sometimes. I will run the acting panel at the same time as the singing panel. So there'll be an acting teacher or somebody in the department, a director perhaps, as well as a singing, a singing specialist, whether that's a singing teacher or myself. Um, and we would typically hear the songs first. Then once you've heard those, you would then go into your monologues. And after that, we sometimes run a bit of an interview, depending on the person in front of us and whether that's appropriate. Uh, and in that, we really just want to get to know you, hear why you've come to us. Um, I think students can feel like every every question is a test. <laughs> um, and so, and I, I often ask, um, how did you feel that went? And I, you can see the students go, oh no, what do I say? Do I say it was really good? Do I say it was really bad? Um, I just want you to be honest. Um, that's probably in terms of if I'm on the panel, I just want to hear from you about what was your experience? Mm -hmm. If you could wave a magic wand and something was better about that, what would it have been? What were your aims? Um, yeah, I just want to hear a bit from you. It's, it's not always a test. Mm -hmm. I just want to know. Mm -hmm. At what point does the auditionee need to stop thinking about what the panel want and focus on what they are actually going to give? Most auditionees have been preparing for quite a while before they've come into the room. There's a, there's a kind of idea that I've read in a book when the panel, when the person's performing or speaking, their focus is on themselves and how they're delivering. Mm. That's also where the audience's focus is going to be. But when that singer, that auditionee's focus is on the work, is on telling the story, um, that's also kind of where our focus is. Mm. Um, and so the last thing you want to be doing whilst performing is going, what is going through their heads? Did they just write something? <laughs> what did they write? Was it good? Was it bad? Did they notice I cracked? Uh, we really want to see you telling the story. Um, yeah, that, that's, that 
that's where we want your focus to because that's that's the job not to second guess what we're thinking mm. and it might be that we're writing something completely separate to the phrase you just sung we yeah. could be writing about how beautifully you started the song we could have written about you know the previous person even um try not to second guess us um yeah so before coming into the building be fight aim for a point where you're going to be as prepared <clears throat> excuse me, going to be as prepared as possible in terms of learning the music, learning the score, uh, investing in the character, exploring the context. Give yourself, you know, a week or so to just perform. Mm. That happens in the real world when you're in a show. There's a really clearly defined, we're learning the notes. Now we're exploring the character. Now we're into, you know, doing the blocking. Now we're into... Uh, starting to run the show. Mm. Do the same thing for yourself. Before you come in the room, have started to get into the performing of it. Yeah, The technical stuff needs to happen before then. And we're often told to look above the heads of the panel so that we don't give awkward eye contact or that we don't get put off by the panel writing something down. Do you like on eye contact personally or do you prefer people to just look over you? <laughs> Um, that is a personal thing. I don't appreciate eye contact myself. I don't appreciate it. <laughs> you not look at me. <laughs> yes, never look at me. Um, yeah, only because I want to, if, if you're, I mean, realistically, if it's a love song, me as a panelist, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the person you're in love with. <laughs> I want to imagine you on stage performing and how you react to kind of a bigger space. Um, yeah, for me personally, I don't really like eye contact in that setting, but I know I've got lots of acting colleagues particularly that really find that a useful, a useful part of the, of the process. For mm. me, I'd recommend start with your eyes just above the panel as if performing to a bigger space. Mm -hmm. And if you are given direction, uh, to find more eye contact, to find a more personal relationship in the room, absolutely do that. Mm. In fact, that, that is probably worth mentioning. Sometimes in an audition, we might give you some direction after you've just performed. Mm -hmm. If you don't, that's not a bad thing. If you do, that's not a bad thing. It's just, we, we saw something in the moment that we wanted to see what your reaction would be. Mm -hmm. Be flexible in that moment. And whatever it is we ask you to do, dive in and try it. Most people at that point in their in their preparation for auditions have really fixed what that performance is going to be. Mm -hmm. They know where the gestures are. They know where they're going to look. They know which which note has an emotional crack in it. Mm -hmm. And when we're giving you that direction, one of the main things we're looking for is: can you step away from that? that preparation you've done can you be instinctive and responsive in the room yeah um yeah i think sometimes a student will leave will leave an audition going oh can't believe i cracked that note that was that's why this audition didn't go so well for me mm. but in reality they were so focused on that note they forgot to listen and respond in the room and they didn't take the note and it yeah. was the reason, and it was the fact they didn't, they weren't able to respond to the direction is probably more the reason they might not have been so successful that day. Mm. Yeah. 
And you've mentioned a few things that you look for, trainability, being able to take direction, preparation. Is there anything technical that you look for to be in place when you offer somebody a position at a school? I think, well, absolutely there are. We do have, I, as singing teachers, we all have kind of technical technical goals we have for our, for our students or prospective students. It can kind of change depending on the person. Um, if somebody comes in with really developed lyrical legit skills i might have a slightly different hat on than if somebody comes in with you know lower more speech quality or more contemporary belty sounds mm. um, i'm always listening out for whether they sound can they make clear tone easy um does it look like they can make these sounds you know comfortably mm. um those are kind of the main things i'm looking for if if it looks really vocally effortful, um, that's going to be a bit of a red flag for me. But that might not necessarily mean you don't get a place, because um, of course you are coming, you are auditioning for for training, hmm. uh, and we look to look at developing those skills. So I guess in terms of technical criteria, we're looking to see that there are technical skills already being developed mm -hmm. that show trainability. When drama school or higher education program auditions are done, there's sometimes a list that floats around on forums from pianists to say which songs were sung the most, which is yes. really helpful for, for us singing teachers to know what's kind of going in a bit more. For teachers who might be on panels in the future and for yourself, how do you put aside your bias in terms of the songs and maybe genre that you prefer, especially when you've heard the song 16,000 times that day <laughs> and hear it with fresh ears. I mean, there's in terms of a panelist, there's a part of that is your colleagues. Um, and I mean, this is a logistics thing, but actually giving yourself a moment between auditions. Mm. Um, there's a bit of a turnaround, as you'd expect on audition days, and one person is, is in, another person's in. I like to give myself, you know, let's now take five minutes before the next person comes in. Let's sit and think about what we've just heard. Um, and, you know, have a chat with your colleagues. Um, talk about what you've just heard, but also talk about, you know, the news <laughs> um, yeah. uh, as, as just a logistics thing is make sure you're getting out of the headspace of just next, 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 next. I think being in musical theater as a thing, you, you, you are working on that bias all the time. Mm. We do, we do all of course have a bias to, to genres we prefer. Um, however, if you're working with students in an institution, you're working on a range of genres and, and skills anyway. Mm. And I think it boils down to really good storytelling is really good storytelling, kind of whatever the music is, whatever mm. the piece is. Um, your skill set is 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 still developing in the same way. I mean the student skill set is still developed in the same way, whether you really like the song or not. Mm. And so I think you just have to be honest with yourself about what you do and don't like mm. and being careful that you're just constantly aware of that. I don't think there's a, there's a magic answer to that. Just being aware of your bias and trying to see the skill set in front of you rather than, oh, I love this one. <laughs> mm, mm. What could somebody expect from their singing lessons at a place like Italia Conti? So the singing lessons will, will run slightly separately often 
to two other elements of the course. Whereas you might have a variety of classes focusing on one certain piece, for example. The one-to-one sessions with your singing teacher are a moment to support your overall singing studies. And so there's much more collaboration there, which is you'll have so much repertoire to sing over the course of three or four years. Um, You might not be able to sing every song for your singing teacher every week. Mm. And so it's about having a really open collaboration with your teacher. It's It stops being the singing teacher is is your world and that's the only musical experience you have. It goes into you taking ownership of the material you're singing, your technical development, the things you're working towards mm. and working in collaboration with your teacher towards those goals. Mm. Um, in first year, you'll be looking at building foundational skills, depending on what your experience is before. And so in a class, you might be working on a general topic. You know, you might be working on a legit musical theatre style. If you are already really established, but there's one element of that that is being problematic for you, that's the thing you're you're not probably going to work on as much in the class, but that's your time to go to your one-to-one teacher and go, we did this thing in class that's really helped or I really struggled with. Can you help me unpack that? Mm. Um, yeah. So a singing teacher in an institution is part of a, a collaborative team. We, we as a faculty work together to build your skills. Whereas before and after, they tend to be your one and only point of contact. Mm. And so the thing I try to develop in that relationship is that collaborative the student and the teacher taking taking ownership over over the material mm. and the the technical targets. Mm. And speaking of technical targets, there are a few pedagogical topics that tend to give even cans of worms a little bit of I don't know a temperature. <laughs> and one of them is mix. And I thought that this really does apply to the musical theatre genre. Um, And so I'm putting you on the spot. (laughs) Why do you think this term is confusing for students at this level? And how do you best explain it to them? Right. Um, Yeah, a can of worms. Uh, So why is it confusing at this level? I think it's probably confusing at every level. Yes, (laughs) Um, uh, good point. (laughs) Yeah, and so there are obviously specific challenges in, you know, full-time training. I mean, the, the first thing I would say in terms of some caveats is as singing teachers, myself included, we're not voice scientists or, or not all of us are voice scientists. And so whilst we try to keep on top or we, we aim as best as possible to keep on top of research as it develops, uh, we also have to make practical decisions in the room about what, ter- what do we call stuff And what do I ask my student to do at the time? And what targets do I set for them? And so part of the confusion comes from the fact that it's still a really highly debated topic. Mm. Not everybody agrees on what might be happening or whether it even exists. And so we have, in terms of my current, there's a really great article by Ingo Tietze, uh, I think from 2018 called Mixed Registration. which is not a a scientific paper. It's 
it's it, from the Journal of Singing, and so it's it's aimed at singing teachers, mm. and it's a bit of a summary of I think where his thoughts were certainly in 2018, which mm. in the science world is a long time ago. So his thoughts may have changed, but it's, it's a really good article, and he explains that. So we have these two main vocal registers, right? We have chest voice or the lower register, heavy mechanism, whatever you want to call it. And we have this upper register, whether you want to call it head voice or falsetto. And there's still debate going on about, well, what things exist between those. And so that chest voice, if you're in inverted commas, is described by a vibration, vibrational mechanism one, Mm-hmm. known by some as M1, and that upper register vibrational mechanism 2 being M2. Mm-hmm. And so one argument is that those two vibrational mechanisms are distinct and cannot be mixed. Therefore, any sounds you make that are perceptually mixed, mm-hmm. are we've made other adjustments elsewhere that are, are disguising that fact. Mm-hmm. Another a, another argument is that perhaps those two vibrational mechanisms can be merged to be continuous. Cans of worms in themselves. Mm. <laughs> and so there's also an acoustic element, right? Which is, there's a really great quote from that, from that article, which I might be paraphrasing, is the same laryngeal, if the laryngeal uh, element is stable, a change in vowel can still result, result perceptually in a different registration. Right. So if, if the same thing is happening in your larynx, but you change the vowel, we can still hear that as a register shift. Mm. And so these things have, are not yet, no, not everybody's singing from the same hymn sheet. Mm. So then on the other hand, I'm in a room with a musical theatre student and I go, what, am, what terms am I going to use? Uh, what am I? What am I actually going to teach them? Mm. So you have to decide. Firstly, am I going to use the term mix, and and is that serving my students? I personally do use the term mix because it's used pretty widely in the industry, mm. and I want to armor my students for going into the world and somebody that isn't me using that term, and I want them to know what they might be asking for. Mm. I also think it can be helpful. Uh, even if it if it is true that you know vibrational mechanism one and M one and M two cannot be mixed, I think for some students who don't have a pedagogical background, in their heads they go right. There are two completely separate sounds, and I don't need to explore you know <laughs> moving smoothly between them. Mm-hmm. I don't need to worry about the fact I've got this big this big transitional thing happening. And so I think it can be helpful to use the term mix. Mm. Uh, But I try to contextualize it. I explain to the students, lots of people use this term differently. For me, in terms of a practical choice, I talk about chest mix being, I'm pretty confident it's vibrational mechanism one. Mm. (laughs) And head mix, I'm pretty confident it's M2. And if I just say mix, either going back and forth between those two, or I can't tell perceptually. Mm. So like at this point in a class, I always go to audio examples yeah, because we've got so bogged down in the terminology and trying to understand what it is or isn't. I mm. go, okay, but let's listen to some really good singers. 
what would you call this sound? Mm. So I play an example that I think sounds, you know, I I would describe it as, let's say, um, a heady mix or an M2 mix. Mm. Obviously, head and chest, it's not really made in your chest. It's not really made in your head. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But let's use the term heady mix. Some students come back with, oh, I'd just call that strong falsetto. Mm. Or they go, oh, I'd just call that X, Y, and Z. And so I find that's the moment where it starts to click for the students. Mm. I go, well, this person's calling that a belt. This person over here is saying, oh, that's a chest mix. This person over here is just saying it's just a mix. Mm. But we're all listening to the same sound. Can we start to make sounds that are in that world? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I'm, I'm very happy to stop using the terminology with a student when it stops serving them. Mm. I tend to change my terminology to suit, suit the student. Um, yeah. And if a student uses a term with me, I might say, what would you, uh, I might get them to demonstrate that, then demonstrate not it. Mm. <laughs> and so I can hear what they're referring to. Um, yeah, I'm often saying, what would you call that sound? You just made a great sound on that, you know, high C. What would you call it? Mm. Right, let's save that term. I want you to have access to that kind of setup frequently. Mm. Let's try and bookmark it. I can imagine you with a little notebook of all these different terms, being like, hold on, student, this person, (laughs) you say this. (laughs) Well, I mean, to an extent, yeah. I mean, I don't keep a list, mm. but you, you keep that conversation going with a student. And, you know, the student's terminology also evolves. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of have to move with it. In, in, in my book, there is, abso- in, in terms of my, my ears, there is absolutely a perceptual mix. Yeah. Um, there are sounds that, I mean, this, this is an exercise I tend to do in a class, which is what kinds of sounds do we expect of in inverted commas, chest voice. Mm. You hear things like loud, call-like, ringing, like speaking. Uh, and I go, great. And mm. I say, what characteristics might we expect of head voice or falsetto? You might get hooty, fluty, breathy, maybe soft, operatic, um, classical, maybe breathy. And so I go, perceptually, if we mix any of those expectations of the sound, mm. you might call that perceptually a mix, mm. which goes back to kind of that quote from Ingo Tietze, which is laryngeally, the same thing might be happening, but if you change the vowel, it perceptually might sound more mixed. Mm. I'm gonna be really cheeky here and say, can you throw in a little demo? So if we have, hey, I'm pretty confident that's M1. Mm-hmm. If I go, woo, I'm pretty confident that's M2. If I do, hey, I think that oo sounds headier in inverted commas mm. than the hey. Yeah. Uh, but I'm pretty confident. I'm still in M1. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, if you had, you know, falsetto that you put a load of twang on, that perceptually might sound, in inverted commas, chestier. Mm. I tend to focus on mixed voice skills 
rather than mixed voice as a register. Mm -hmm. Can you move smoothly between qualities? Mm -hmm. When going into your higher range, can you maintain the dynamic intensity? Can you find in your lower range softer, more lyrical sounds? Mm. Uh, and I tend to find that ends in sounds that some people would call mixed. I don't think the terminology matters hugely if the student can make the sounds. Mm. Is there going to be something we need in place first for mixed to be more reliably called upon or explored? Um, yes. I guess my question to that would be, what kind of mix are we talking about? Um, that would, the kind of foundational steps to that might be different. Mm. Um, I would say you're going to want to have an established, comfortable range in M1 and a comfortable established range in M2. Mm. Uh, and this is uh, borrowing from some of Chris Johnson's work, mm -hmm. establishing that shared range between those two things. Can you in that shared range move back and forth between those two sounds mm. easily and comfortably? Uh, if you can't do that, it's going to be harder to find those perceptually in-between sounds. Mm. Can you sing in M1 high, softly and easily? Mm. If not, that's probably not going to mix as well with your higher register. Mm. If your upper register is breathy and weak, it's going to be really hard to get that to sound anything like your, your chest voice. Yeah, we so can yes. shove them back in the can. Let's shove them yeah. back in. Well, yeah, I, I think... I think we just have to be comfortable with with the fact that it is a it is an ongoing debate. Mm. I just think as teachers, we need to not assume what somebody else means when they use a term. Um, yeah. And I think if you're working with a student that has a lot of singing background or has worked with another teacher, really ask them, what do you mean by that? Can you demonstrate? Can you demonstrate it? Mm. So for an example for me, I, in terms of soft, soft palette being up or down, mm. I might say to a student, if I, if I could wave a, a magic wand and make something better about that for you, what would it be? They might go, ooh, I want my soft palette to be much more lifted throughout the whole phrase. I go, okay, just so I know what we're actually talking about, can mm. you demonstrate a phrase with your soft palette really high? and a phrase with your soft palate low. Mm. It might be that the student slightly mis misinterpreted what's actually happening, yeah. or it could be that that's a really helpful goal for them. It just gives me, it orients me in that singer's internal <laughs> landscape. Mm. Mm. Is there anything about this awareness of vocal instrument, the soft palate, the larynx, the vocal folds themselves that play a part in the audition? Is is that self-awareness of a singer like an important element? And do you test any of that through, or not test, but you know, ask any questions about that at the audition interview? <clears throat> I don't ask any questions about that at, at an audition. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a slightly different hat on being on an audition panel, mm. which is I'm not there to explore what might help that singer develop their technique as such mm. i'm there almost as an as an audience member <laughs> to go mm. uh, what as a performance what does it, what does this person have to offer do i think they're showing some skills that i think that is an indicator that we're going to be able to develop that further mm. and so if somebody has no clue where their larynx is 
that sings and acts phenomenally well no. does cares? not make a difference to me. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody goes to see a West End show and goes, wow, isn't there, you know, larynx stable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe singing teachers do. Yeah. Um, Maybe that answer was a can of worms in itself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we mentioned in the intro that you have been volunteering at the voice clinic at Lewisham Hospital f- since 2018. Mm-hmm. So why did you start volunteering and how has that influenced you in the studio? Yeah, so uh, Linda Hutchison is a member of staff at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama where I trained. And Linda is a singing rehabilitation coach, a really wonderful teacher and coach. And through our relationship at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, when I studied there, that just became, so, I mean, I've always been, you know, a, a, a vocal geek. Mm. <laughs> and so when you hear about these, you know, other strings to people's bows, I, you know, bugged Linda and said, what do you do at the clinic? Um, what does that work look like? How has it helped you? Um, and it, it was Linda that suggested, well, why don't you go in and just watch? Why don't you see what happens in the clinic? And so I went along and have kind of been there ever, <laughs> ever since. And that role's kind of slightly developed. Um, and so in terms of, so I, I also do singing rehabilitation work. Mm. So in a multidisciplinary voice clinic that focuses on professional voice users, there tends to be about three members of staff. So that would be the ENT consultant, a speech language therapist, and when possible, a singing rehabilitation coach. Mm -hmm. And so they're all in the room whilst you're being scoped. Mm. In terms of in the clinic, that is the domain really of the ENT consultant and the speech language therapist. Mm. Uh, The singing rehabilitation coach is there to advise in singing specific things. And so it's, it's Linda Hutchison, who is the, mm. who is the NHS singing rehabilitation coach at Lewisham. Mm. Uh, and th- they will offer insights on the singing front, but that in that room, it's really the, the ENT consultant and the speech language therapist, mm. the singing rehabilitation coach really comes into their work outside of that room mm. based on what was discovered. So typically in the recovery of a singer or a singer having having some sort of speech language therapy, it's it's that next step from speech language therapy back to singing eight shows a week. Mm. And so I do my singing rehabilitation work in private practice. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's where I'm going, okay, what's happened in the clinic? What happened in your speech language therapy? How can we take that? and gradually get you back to firing up, firing on all cylinders mm. as a singing performer. Mm. And your work at the clinic and what you've seen when you're volunteering, has that changed the way that you're perceiving things in the classroom? In one sense, with some students, I am now more aware of when it's a technical issue. Mm. Now, we can't always, there, there are some things that you cannot tell without looking with a scope Mm. and significant experience. But there are some things where I'm now more, I'm not more confident in thinking this is a technical issue Mm. that if it's not, but if it's not resolved, you know, we can refer you to the clinic. I'm also much more aware of when a student is persistently showing, you know, red flags, Mm. 
and symptoms to go, okay, let's get you into the clinic to get you seen. Mm. And what would that be for you? Um, persistent breathiness, roughness or hoarseness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, la- a, a sudden loss of range, mm-hmm. sudden voice loss that the, the student didn't recover from. It's, I guess a practical one is, is there a technical element that is foundational that we're not ever getting past? Mm. Lots of young singers have, you know, slightly breathy, breathy phonation. But if that isn't being resolved and is consistent and persistent, Mm. that's when I start to go, hmm, I wonder if there's something going on here. Mm. Yeah. Great. And what patterns have you noticed? Is there an injury or a situation that you are seeing the most? You know, it's interesting. It's always really varied. Um, Mm. And actually, even some things that you that perceptually sound very similar, can be really wildly different when you actually look. And that's one of the reasons, you know, you're really keen, not, in fact, not keen, it's an absolute no go, that if you are a singing teacher, just listening to somebody, you do not try and diagnose something going on, you just, You can have a, you can maybe have a, have a guess, but you just can't know. Mm. Um, back to your question, in terms of have, have there been kind of any uh, trends? Mm. Not necessarily in terms of actual pathologies, but in terms of there was a big influx, certainly in my private practice after lockdown. Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether it was part of the anxiety of of that time. Well, are we still in that time? Mm. <laughs> uh, or whether it's, you know, being at home on Zoom all the time. Mm. But certainly there was a lot more fatigue. There was yeah. a lot more, there's a lot more, you know, uh, voices struggling. Mm. And whether that is, you know, something that in a few years we'll look back and go, wow, look, look at the number of patients we had in that month. I don't know. Mm. Um, but that's a big trend I've seen recently. Yeah. I guess my the thing that I would like to say about getting scoped is teaching somewhere like Conti. We have amazing, we have amazing dancers, amazing singers, amazing actors. If a dancer goes, ouch, my ankle's been hurting for three months, they immediately go get it checked out. There is no shame. There's no, there's no doubt there. When a singer has a persistent vocal problem, they seem so much more reluctant. And this isn't Conti, this is across Mm. the board to go get it checked out. Mm. Um, if you're worried about it, just go get it checked out. At the very least, if you can go get it checked out, go take a video of your vocal folds. And if everything's good, you have a baseline. Yeah. Uh, people shouldn't be afraid to explore that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we spoke with uh, Dr. Declan Costello recently for the podcast all about allergies and um, coping with upper respiratory tract infections. And he also mentioned that teachers tend to be quite a frequent visit to his clinic. So how do you maintain vocal health as a busy voice teacher? <laughs> Me personally, or how do I recommend people do? You personally, and also what do you recommend? Yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> workload is is the main is the main thing we Mm. all teach far too much i think (laughs) Um, we tend to fill all the hours of the day and if even if you're not demonstrating that's a lot of talking Mm. Uh, so monitoring your vocal load building in small breaks into your day 
even if that's 10, 15 minutes where you're not using your voice, that's that's going to be beneficial. Mm. Keep hydrated. I mean, as teachers, we tend to be aware of vocal hygiene. It's doing it ourselves. Uh, yeah, and when there is a problem, going to go get it checked out, sharpish. Mm. Um, it's better to catch something early where it's when it's not an issue uh, rather than wait six months and go, oh, wow, my voice hasn't been right for four months. Mm. Um, practically, it's watching your demonstrations, mm. monitoring your, your vocal load throughout the day. Yeah. Um, and if you have had a vocal issue to be aware of, you know, being kind to your voice, um, whether that is if you're teaching in a, in a group scenario, is it possible to get a, an on-your-body microphone so you mm. don't have to be projecting all day. Mm, mm. Well, Michael, it's been so lovely to chat with you. Thank you so much for giving some of your time. Where is it that people can go to find out more about you? Ooh, well, I mean, if you're auditioning for Conti, I'm sure you'll meet me. <laughs> and outside of that, you can just Google me and I have a website that I'm sure we can put a link to below. But I'm always happy to take emails and answer questions if people have them. Uh, yes, people have been very generous I've, I've, I've been really fortunate to work with some amazing, amazing people in my life, um, pedagogically. Mm. Uh, and so I'm always happy to pass on when I can, because um, people have been very generous with their, with their knowledge with me. Yeah, yeah. And you're so approachable and lovely. So anyone who is coming to audition is in such great hands. So, yeah. Thank, thank you, you very so, much. so much. Thank you. as if we have come to the end of 2022 i'm pretty sure i still actually have some quality street left in the tub from last year <laughs> i can't believe it how do you do that for heaven's sakes i know it's a skill mm. <laughs> what's been your highlight from 2022 well one of them is obviously becoming a learning center with the rsl so that we can deliver this level five qualification but I have to say I was very excited when somebody actually registered onto the course. That was a bit of a highlight. Yeah, there's been lots, actually, just getting through the year. Yeah. <laughs> it's a highlight. Oh, dear. It's all very exciting. We've had a really great time on the podcast this year with so many incredible guests. Mm. We're going to take a short break for the festive period, but we'll be back on the 11th of January for a whole new year of amazing conversations. So it's just time to wrap up this year and say happy holidays to you, Lynn, and to all of our listeners. Well, happy holidays to everybody, whatever you're doing and however you celebrate it. Make sure you have a bit of a break as well, because that's important. And looking forward to seeing you in 2023.